This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for February 13th, 2014, the Everything is Awesome edition. I'm Dan Coyce, I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who is eight, and Harper, who is six. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate, and I'm the mother of Harry, who is five, Sam, who is three, and Wally, who is 11 months. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dan. So today we're going to talk to Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson about American Promise, their PBS POV documentary following two black boys from Brooklyn, their son Idris and his friend Shan, from kindergarten through high school graduation. What did they learn about the particular challenges that black boys face in the American education system and what lessons can all parents take from Idris and Shan's stories? In our second segment, we'll discuss the gigantic blockbuster hit, The Lego Movie, and try to interrogate the specific kinds of Lego play that the movie espouses. But first, our parenting fails and triumphs of the week. Allison, what have you got? Well, after a triumph last week, which hasn't necessarily remained a triumph because it was about <laughs> having my they babysitter so do did. homework <laughs> with my son, which seemed great for a couple of days, and then they stopped doing it. However, <laughs> um, I have a failure. I have a double failure. Um, I can I'll do the very abbreviated version, which is that I my kids ran out of their all the, they were complaining that the markers uh, were all dried up, which of course was because they left the caps off the markers. So I no they what <laughs> I know oh. um, I gave them permanent markers, which I thought they could handle because that was all we had in the grown up <laughs> drawer at the time, and they really wanted to draw. And then I went and gave the baby. A bath, and when I came out, there was a line of green permanent marker from the entrance of our apartment on the ground through the hallway, through the kitchen, into our sunroom, and all over our white (laughs) table. Uh, So that was number one failure is don't, you know, is giving your children permanent markers. My fault. Uh, number two, though, is when I gave – this is the middle child, Sam, who did this. When I gave him a timeout and I'm, like, on the ground trying to scrub the stuff off and getting really angry and hairy. My eldest, of course, is in the kitchen with me, you know, kind of sucking up as kids do when the other when their sibling is in trouble. So, you know, right. I, I love you, Mom. I would never do that. Wow, that was really bad that Sam did that. And I'm sitting – I'm, like, scrubbing on the ground and mumbling about how Paul, our landlord, is going to be so angry. 
And Harry asks me why he's going to be angry. And I go into this long speech about uh, about renting apartments and about security deposits and being responsible for stuff. And he his eyes just well up and because he had not realized that we might not live here forever. And I said something like, when we move and Paul, you know, Paul comes to look at the place and he sees these lines, he's not going to give us our money back. And now he's obsessed, like he's asking constantly, is the window ours? Is this table ours or Paul's? Is this toilet ours or Paul's? So failure number two is causing my son to fear that our mean landlord is going to show up one day and take all of his stuff. But you've explained that, in fact, it's all Paul's. Everything <laughs> everything you own is actually Paul's. The kids Your are life Paul's. is Paul's. Yeah, I mean, if he wanted them... <laughs> They, they, that, that'd be it. I mean, it depends. If we could own the house, he could have the kids. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right, so I'm not sure if mine is a success or a fail, and I'm hoping that you can help me sort it out. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, so uh, Lyra, my older daughter's math class right now is all about multiplication tables, right? It's all They're memorizing their multiplication tables. And so every day she has a drill that she's supposed to do, a worksheet, that has 100 very simple multiplication problems on it, and you are supposed to answer them all. And they're all, you know, this week is sevens week. So every day she has a sevens multiplication sheet that has 100 questions, seven times four, seven times eight, seven times nine. That's a lot Three times six. But they're all, but it's the same question over and over again, basically, right? right? They're just, it's it's each of the 10 possible single digit numbers you could multiply seven by, each of them 10 times, but like scattered randomly throughout the worksheet. And each day she does this sheet and she's supposed to time herself each day and see if she gets faster and if she gets more of them right. And uh, and this last week she was doing all these sevens and I think like on on Tuesday or Wednesday, I said to her, I mean, you know that, so like they ask three times seven up here and you figured it out, you could just write the answer for three times seven and all the places where it's three times seven, you can just write 21 (laughs) the nine other times that it asks you three times seven. And her eyes like lit up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she went, oh, I can, I can do that. So she just did that. And then she did it for all the other ones. And her time got so much better. Right. Like it used to take her like 20 minutes to do these worksheets, but she got her time down to seven. So <laughs> I sort of think that she is still learning through repetition. Like she's still re- – she's is really driving home. Three times seven is 21. Wait, is but, speed a part of the exercise? Well, you're, I think speed is a measure of how well you are getting the multiplication okay. tables, how well this is sticking in your brain. Okay. So I don't know whether I have short-circuited the learning process by doing this or if I've just taught her that, as in, as is the case with all tests, there are sometimes shortcuts that smart people work out. I, um, I believe the answer lies in your intent. Was your intent to, to teach her the latter lesson that there are tricks and sometimes that's what smart people figure out? Or was your intent to just like hurry up the homework so that you could move on to something else? I guess it was the latter because while she was doing her homework, I was like watching TV or something. Yeah. I think I was watching the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. So success. success. Triumph. Success. Triumph. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay. So let's move on to our first topic. When Idris, a middle-class black boy living in Brooklyn, got into the exclusive and very white Manhattan private school, Dalton, in 1999, his parents, Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson, decided to document his experience and the experience of his best friend and classmate, Shayon. The result is the remarkable documentary, American Promise, which tracks both boys' lives from kindergarten to their first day of college and is streaming on PBS.com until March 6th. We're really pleased to have Joe and Michelle on the show today. Welcome, guys. Hello. We're happy to be here. Good. Thanks. Uh, So first, can you just tell us a little bit about why you wanted Idris to go to Dalton and... um, how you felt when he got in? 
Well, uh, we were very excited uh, when he was accepted, but it was with uh, uh, some mixed emotion as well. You know, Dalton uh, has an academic curriculum which uh, which which stands up to to any in the country. We were concerned. We wanted that for our son. We thought he could handle that level of rigor. He tested well, but at the same time, we wanted him to be uh, socially and emotionally uh, comfortable in that environment. What Dalton offered to us at that time was uh, a student body that would uh, match the city of New York. So it was moving from its position as a predominantly a majority, actually, uh, with a student body with very few people of color to one that they expected to be 20 or 30 or 40 percent of color. Now, that took 13 years uh, to happen uh, for its lower school, and so we were not advantaged by that. Did you connect with any parents of kids that came in in the years after Idris, and was their experience much different when the school had already sort of um, been farther along in that transition? Um, We've connected. Yes, we did connect with some parents after they actually, some of them reached out to us uh, for conversations. So um, just to say that the process, of diversity for a school like Dalton and many schools that embrace, predominantly white schools that embrace this initiative, I think they come to understand that numbers aren't enough. It's more, there's more to this whole kind of um, process than simply bringing um, additional uh, kids of color in. There's other work that has to be done that's more in-depth that involves, you know, conversations about inclusion and equity um, that, in some cases, schools kind of learn along the way, and some are more prepared than others to kind of um, uh, engage in some of these issues. So not to say so the numbers have increased. I think that are issues that are still that kind of still need to be addressed, and that um, certainly the school is growing in terms of understanding uh, what it means. It was, it was really fascinating to me in this documentary, the number of times that, you know, you, you had interviews with, with teachers or administrators at Dalton who clearly were committed to what they were trying to accomplish both with your child and with Sean and also more broadly in the school. And nonetheless, how, as you say, because they were thinking of this, it, it seemed in many ways as, a, as something that they could solve immediately it was amazing to watch them sort of realize as time went on that this was, that this is a 10-year, a 15-year process, and it's one that can be difficult for everyone who is part of those first initial classes to to make these changes. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's, um, um, it's not just the first classes. I mean, it's just the need that we have to, in some cases, be self-reflective, there has to be, you know, safe spaces uh, provided for by the institutions where teachers can talk to each other and where conversations can be facilitated um, around unpacking maybe some assumptions, where young, uh, where students can get together as early as middle school um, and start talking about um, how they're feeling, whether they're feeling included and what kind of perceptions they feel that they're being, you know, uh, uh, um, um, experiencing. And the same with parents as well. There have to be spaces for parents to talk, to share information, 
and to kind of better understand the environment that they're in. But also, there should be discussions across across communities within within the, the school institution between parents, too. I mean, I think what we want to say is that, you know, even with the best of intentions, there are things that there are negative impacts because our assumptions, we breathe it all in, these uh, stereotypes, because they're part of the culture, the media, part of the institutionalized uh, discrimination that exists. Um, and uh, we're not necessarily conscious of it, even if we want to do the best thing. So, so, so there's often a, an attempt uh, uh, by many to focus on Dalton and, and their culpability uh, or their failure uh, to make these changes. But what we really have to understand that all American institutions are undergoing the same process. Implicit bias exists in the police force and is partially responsible for stop and frisk. Uh, implicit biases uh, exist in the uh, health care system and, and, and attributes in part to the health care disparity. So this difficult conversation, we have to applaud the schools who are beginning to have that conversation, and we can have it almost in every environment. And, and, and that takes a commitment, because when, when I say something that, that makes you angry, uh, I have to be in a safe place. So so that uh, we can process it, and I have to be able to process it next week and the week after that. Many people give up. Many many people say it's not workable. But what we do know, it is workable if the, the tools are, are are provided to the stakeholders. And so, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go no, ahead. I was just, one of the most heartbreaking scenes in the film is at eighth grade graduation when Cheyenne walks with the rest of his class knowing that he won't continue at Dalton for for high school because he, he was basically not asked back. But then he goes on to a predominantly black and what looks, at least from the film, like a really great school in Brooklyn where the principal says, I think it was the principal, says something to the effect of, you know, we can educate our own boys. And what we see as viewers is a really thriving environment. Um, and I, I'm wondering how you, how you felt filming there and then filming your son at Dalton at the same time. What did you feel Idris was getting and then also missing by not being around many other black boys? Well, you know, uh, we we were uh, always concerned about that experience, but we provided that. We, we had to make a major effort in our family to make sure that he uh, had contact with not only other African-American boys of, of his socioeconomic status, but of... Uh, of the working class and the and the upper class, we provided him with try try to make sure that he was aware of uh, the community and the people who lived in the community around him. But also, um, it, the high school was definitely a different experience at Dalton for uh, Idris as well, for well a number of reasons. One, there there was certainly a larger cohort of students of color that came at the high school level. The the class. The grade got larger, and then more students, uh, certainly African-American males, came in uh, to the school. So he was able to have a, a, uh, um, a, 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 um, a critical mass of, of uh, friends and classmates uh, who were similarly situated as him, some who were from Brooklyn and some as far as Queens. So I think the level of comfort increased for him, mm-hmm. and so that's one element, and then the, uh, another element, I mean, you kind of see the juxtaposition in the film 
slightly. You know, Idris sought out many classes that validated his own historical experience of his community, um, whether it's the Invisible Man scene that we see in the film around African-American literature, African-American history and culture. Every opportunity he had, he sought to learn more about his own uh, community and background uh, as a form of validation within the school environment. The other thing that's really important for us and that we certainly found at Dalton was the presence of this African-American male uh, teacher uh, who not only was Idris's advisor, um, who increased demandingness, uh, uh, the academic demandingness for Idris, but also provided some social and emotional support uh, for him all for throughout his four years of high school. But this teacher was not only important for Idris and the boys of color who were there, he was equally important for the white students who took his class. Because we're talking about building a global society in which we can see different people in different levels and different spaces of authority that, uh, uh, that are challenging our assumptions as well. So it was certainly important. Uh, th- those experiences were important for Idris and certainly helped his, his, his high school uh, uh, process. When you that think teacher of- seemed amazing, really. That guy seemed great. Yeah, yeah, he's he's like a rock star at the school. Yeah. When you think about some of the issues that Idris faced there, um, do most uh, did you feel that a lot of the uh, of the difficulties were about race or or about class? I mean, I thought you know it's interesting. Toward the end of the film, you guys, I think I, I don't know if you still do, but in the film, you had a, a home. I don't know if it's yours or you had you went to a a, sum, a summer home in, in Woodstock, and I was thinking how. There must be kids at Dalton that have, you know, le- I assume there are kids at Dalton that have much less money. And, I, and, and that must be, you know, another incredibly difficult thing for kids to be around all that wealth, um, even though I'm sure your family had, had less than most of the families there. Um, what for Idris, was it was he was, was that hard for him? I think the biggest question that we have uh to, to understand as parents in terms of how we advocate for our, our children and how we talk to them. One, we must talk to our children about race, and I would say also about class, because it's really about validating your own family narrative, your own history, as it pertains to your child's identity and sense of self, so he can confront whatever assumptions or stereotypes or discrimination that he will face uh, 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 walking through life. And it starts at school. It starts with the peers. So whether it's, you know, uh, you know, feeling, uh, incomplete or, or, or inadequate, uh, because of certain class issues or not being able to, you know, purchase something that your classmate can, you know, you, that needs to be unpacked at home and, and, and talked about in a way that you, we can all feel validated. And, and it, and the schools, in that case, they need to be transparent about these issues. They can't roll them under the rug because then the students will make their own assumptions and ideas and have their own conversations that are not necessarily, you know, informed or done in a way that's constructed to get to the next level. And so. I think these disparities can be uh, uh, teaching points. I-, I can recall being in Haiti with Idris when he was uh, 10 and he's, uh, he was speaking to me about not having a second home and, uh, and how he was different from the rest of his classmates. And I'm looking at, out at uh, the, the skyline in Haiti. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this 
beautiful uh, Christmas tree, and and we talked about the importance of, of that experience and that place. Now, did he get that? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but you said it. <laughs> but I said it. But if you speak to him today, he will speak to that experience. And while and and today he's a sophomore in Occidental. And, uh, but that speaks to this question of uh, uh, the peer-to-peer, uh, because there are points where our kids are not going to listen to us as much, right? But if we've laid a foundation and laid and, and established, you know, uh, a positive peer interaction where they're able to find peers who are similarly situated, um, then they can get the same message from multiple places, uh, whether it's, you know, peers who have the same experiences. Um, or, you know, or role models or teachers who can kind of speak to the same experiences. And I think that's where the institutions have to play a role in, you know, where numbers count. You have to have a critical mass, whether it's along, you know, race or class lines or both. Um, um, but also, you know, in faculty representation as well. Joe, you touched on this briefly, but can you just give us, those of us who just watched the movie, a little update on how Idris and Shayan are doing? Yes. um, Idris is at Occidental College, and he's a sophomore, and he's declaring a major this semester in cognitive science. And um, he's, he's doing well. He's convinced his... New Yorker girlfriend to move out to uh, LA to the LA area and she's in Whoa. college in that area as well. <laughs> so um so yeah, she's at Pomona College. And um uh Shayon uh is uh majoring in graphic design. Just oh, his, his uh <laughs> predicted what he's wanted to do for many, many years and he's at York College in Queens. Great. Oh, great. Well, thank you guys for coming on. It's really a wonderful film. And again, um, for all of our listeners, it's streaming on PBS.com until March 6th. We hope you all check it out. Yes, we also have our book that's just come out, been published by Random House, called Promises Kept, Raising Black Boys to Succeed in School and in Life. And you can check that out on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And we'll put it on our show page also. Yeah, it's an extension of the conversation that the film starts. And it's got very, you know, practical guides and solutions and around how do we deal with these questions, with these questions, as parents and caregivers. Great. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Thank you. So each week we answer a call-in question from a listener. At least starting this week we do. If you'd like advice or movie recommendations or just to say hello because parenting is a lonely, lonely business, please give us a call at four two four two five five seven eight three three. That's four two four two five five rude. Once again, very easy to remember because that's what my children are. So here is today's question. It comes from listener Chris in Chicago. Hi, um, my name is Chris, and I live in Chicago, and there was recently a a fervor over a couple that brought a child to a high-end restaurant here named Alinea. The head chef tweeted uh, that there was baby in the dining room, and it caused a, a back-and-forth argument about uh, how rude the parents were to have brought a baby to this restaurant and how terrible it is. And I was curious about this because I've, I've had, as I'm sure most parents have, experience with being sort of classified as dirty breeders when I've gone into restaurants. Is it implicit that any trip to a more upscale restaurant should be child-free? 
because I was I was genuinely surprised at the vitriol that was spouted on this topic. Thank you very much. That's a great question, Chris. Uh, I'd be hear- curious to hear what you have to say, Allison, but my immediate answer is yes. You should not bring a baby to Alinea. Alinea is a beautiful, amazing restaurant. There should not be a baby in it. Well, my first thought is I always thought it was Alinea, so thank you for <laughs> clarifying, Chris and Dan. Um, and I'll probably continue to say Alinea during this segment because it's in my head. But um, I'm on the fence about this. I mean, I think certainly I would not go into a restaurant like Alinea with my three children or with, you know, with like, I don't know, toddlers to whatever age you can't control your kid until, which maybe is 10. <laughs> But um, 25, but a baby, a newborn baby. I mean, in this instance, it was actually like the parents had gotten this reservation super far in advance. It's really hard to get into this place. And then their babysitter fell through at the last minute, which I think all of us can uh, can relate to whether or not we're just going to a movie or to pizza or Alinea. Um, But and so they brought their little baby. I mean, I guess, you know, it's not ideal, but I think. A baby is different than a disruptive toddler. So uh, I agree as- that a baby is different than a disruptive toddler. And uh, and maybe, maybe, maybe you can get away with your peacefully sleeping baby in a car seat who never makes a single peep yeah. in a dire situation like this. But in general— And also being willing to exit when the baby right, obviously, make a peep. If the baby makes even a single noise, you should right. be out the door. <laughs> right. But—, but that like that extreme, I feel like, is the exception that proves the rule. The rule being, don't bring your baby to Alinea. Now, yeah. I also think that the amount of vitriol that is given to parents who are doing their best in public situations with their kids is like off the charts crazy most of the time. And I'm sure that whatever was, you know, uh, hoisted at this couple online was like way beyond anything that they deserve. Nevertheless, I do think a good standard rule is don't bring your baby to Alinea. Yeah. And also, I mean, we should say, like, most people aren't going to Alinea. So what about the question probably more broadly applies to, like, a restaurant that isn't a total dump? And I think, you know, it's it, the line is, is hard to know, especially in, you know, when fine dining is pretty casual now. Like, it's not like we can say, right. like, anywhere you have to wear a tie, don't bring your kids. Well, no, you don't have to wear a tie anywhere. Um, but I will say that I do not have fun bringing my kids to nice restaurants and we pretty much only take them to places where it's like not embarrassing if they're on the ground which is generally where they end up after 10 minutes uh so we don't go anywhere we go to diners and pizza places and the bagel shop which the bagel shop is actually too upscale for us i mean i do think that's a good call like if you know that at some point during the meal you are going to worry that you're ruining things for the people around you you probably will be. Right. And so you should probably take your kids somewhere else. And the I don't only... think that's as much necessarily all about worrying about everyone else, but is that even is it even an enjoyable dining experience for you? No, like, no yeah. not at all. Yeah. Not at all. But here's the other tip that I would give for anyone who's taking their kids to a restaurant. Whatever you are going to tip your server, <laughs> tip double that. Yeah. 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 Even if you get on the ground and clean up all the crumbs. like they're oh, yeah. pre- I'm sure they're very appreciative of that, but still. All right. Thank you, Chris from Chicago. Thanks, Chris. All right. On to our second topic, the Lego movie. This past weekend, this animated film made almost $70 million at the box office. It is the biggest February opening since The Passion of the Christ, the last big movie about the <laughs> I chosen. I love one. that comparison. Yeah. Uh, so now, Allison, I know that I liked this movie more than you did, right? You were not impressed by the Lego movie. Well, it wasn't that I was not impressed. I think my hopes had been so high 
uh, as I said, I think in our last podcast, and I, I when I I knew some critics who had who had seen the movie and were <laughs> speaking of it quite highly, which is the danger of this profession. Um, so yeah, I mean, I liked it. It was fun and it was funny and it looked kind of. Uh, I think it looked it was cool the way that they made it. It was somewhat of an assault. I mean, the, the you know whether it's. Legos fighting or whoever. I mean, it was just a lot. Like, the, almost the entire thing was fighting. But mainly, I thought that I couldn't buy into the message, which... Um, well, so let's talk about okay. what that message is. Yes. So at the screening that I went to, yeah, we were sitting next to... It was a press screening, and they had a bunch of, like, amazing Lego models down at the on the floor of the theater. Wait, you didn't like, have your kids with you? or you? Did? I had my kids with okay. me. Okay. Um, and there, so like there was like a huge like Lego Ferris wheel that someone had made in a huge Lego Eiffel Tower, and they had been made by like members of the Washington D.C. area like Lego Club. Yeah. So at the screening, we were sitting next to this guy, this thirty-something guy who was a a Lego, an adult Lego aficionado. His amazing models were up there in the theater as part of this display, and he was super psyched for the movie. But then when it was over, I sort of got the impression he was not thrilled with the turn it had taken. And and so, spoiler alert, if you've not seen the Lego, if you're one of like the five parents in America who have not yet seen the Lego movie, you should um, stop and watch it and then listen to us because we're going to spoil. But uh, a substantial plot twist in the movie is really about the danger of adults with their evil crazy glue freezing their Lego models forever and never playing with them again, freezing them in amber and uh, and making them according to the directions and then never letting anyone touch them ever again because they're toys for adults. And the movie sort of makes it clear that this is not the proper way to play with Legos. But I also thought the movie's message was somewhat muddled in terms of what it was actually saying was the right way to play with Legos. Allison, did you think it had a clear message and do you disagree with that message? No, I actually thought it had a clear message and I generally agree with it. I mean, the, the the debate that the movie presents is whether sort of free play, creative Lego building out of a big, you know, building whatever the hell you want out of a big bin of Legos is valued in this movie more than following instructions um, and following instructions for all parents that have kids who like Legos, you know, are you know, buying these sets, um, often branded sets. So I I sympathize with the position of the movie, which which values creative play over following instructions. I just find it incredibly cynical that they made this very convincing movie that says that, while their you know business model is well, this company's business model is to sell these branded sets. I mean, I, I don't know how to think... how to you know put those two together. I don't even think the movie was like that clear on that issue. I mean, in the sense that. Yes, you know, Lord Business, who is presented as the villain, and he is in favor of making things according to the directions and uh, the dystopia that he creates is built on that concept. But at the same time, you also have these master builders who, when they try to get together to do something important, to make a submarine, they all just build their own way, following their own muse. And because none of them can work together, it completely falls apart and their submarine implodes. So it's not like it's really actually embracing total creativity and free play. Uh, That's and, not really and, what happened. Yeah, isn't that what happened? Like, I got the impression like Batman made all his shit with black bricks, and and uh, and the Unikitty made her stuff with rainbow bricks. And then when they got right, but the reason it exploded is because it got you know bombed by bad sheriff. I don't think it was. No, I don't I think we was, were meant to walk away thinking we it didn't. Believe it didn't work. Really? Maybe I yeah. wasn't watching. 
closely enough, but I don't think so. I well, it's true that. that I was watching this while also trying to wrangle a bunch of kids. Well, let, so two questions. One, after the movie, did your kids express, like, let's go buy Legos or let's go play with Legos? Like, were they little tiny consumers or did they just want to go play with Legos? At the end of the movie, my kids did nothing but sing Everything is Awesome and have expressed (laughs) zero interest in Legos since. So in that regard, it was a success. But what did your kids do? Um, my, I took the two oldest ones, the middle one that, you know, he kind of wasn't, didn't follow the story and didn't, didn't have a position. But right afterwards, I mean, the lights went up and my five-year-old turned to me and said, I can't wait to go home and play with Legos, which was cute and kind of awesome. Normally he's begging me to buy him Legos. So I was, I was really surprised that he didn't say, let's go to the toy store and buy Legos. Um, but you know, and I asked him, which do you, what do you enjoy more, building the sets that you are desperate for us to buy that your brother ultimately breaks or to just play with your big giant bin of Legos that is filled with all of the broken sets? And, he, you know, he said, I, I love them both. I, where do you where do your kids lie in terms of the free free building or set building? Um, my kids are. I would say are more pro free building than set building, but they are just not really Lego kids in general. They oh, they're not. They're not in love with Legos. But so I agree with you to some extent about the cynicism of this movie in that it is a movie with a surface, like to some level, anti-capitalist message, right? Lord Business is the villain. Right. Uh, and So and anti-capitalist does... that Fox Business has taken them to task for being anti Right, which yeah. is, of course, ludicrous because <laughs> right. – you can right now go on to Amazon and buy Lord Business's Lair, the Lego set, right. for $55. <laughs> and the movie made $70 million. I mean, yeah, it's right. ridiculous. And and this isn't to say that, like, I, you know, that I think a movie should be made and then they should give all their money away to charity. I mean, that would be great. But, like, but just the, the conceit of this movie is so in opposition. <laughs> to, the message of this movie is so in opposition to reality that it was really hard for me to swallow. Really hard you, for me to swallow. Is there are there going to be like a, a young generation of kids who when they turn sixteen suddenly realize like, oh my God, everything in the Lego movie was a lie. <laughs> and then they that's what turns them into like little college Marxists. I think that great. yeah, yeah. I think it has the potential to do that for that to happen. <laughs> so the real message of the Lego movie, I think, is at least according to the people of Lego, is there's no wrong way to play with Legos. Like that's an actual quote from an executive at the Lego company about what the message of the movie is, which is another way of saying, of course, there's no person on earth who couldn't benefit from buying more Legos. Right. Because no matter how you play with Legos, we have Legos to sell you. Um and so I find myself a little bit like troubled by by the polar opposition of my two responses to this movie, which is a some amount of 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 realization of how grotesque the cynicism of this movie as product is and as advertisement is, and b pure delight in what I thought was actually an extremely well told well written very funny very visually inventive movie that i would gladly watch a bunch more times and i guess this is like the sort of cognitive disconnect that kids are going through all the time they just don't know it uh in that the everything they watch is usually pretty well made but is also an advertisement for a product things right right but that's not something that i experience that often um and so i think it's it's an interesting movie and i'm interested to see like when they make the Lego movie too, or when they now make the Duplo movie or whatever, right. like how are they going to start to address these various capitalism versus uh, versus everything else issues? I, you know, it sounds like your your Lego your your house is not a Lego house. Mine is really a Lego house in the sort of 
highs and lows of our existence almost entirely revolve around Legos. So, you know, I was not put off by this. I'm not put off by this message that, like, everyone should buy Legos. I mean, I don't care. Play with whatever you want. But I actually think there's, like, a lot of value. I've found a lot of value in my kids playing with Legos. So I, I support this <laughs> this toy. If I support any toy, I support this toy. I'm not, like, I don't want my kids only to have, like, you know, wooden blocks. But... Um, Handcrafted wooden blocks that you made on your leaf. Right. But I didn't, I don't know. And I just, I also, I thought it was a funny movie, but like the whole thing about like asides for parents, I mean, it's not, this is, this is what kids' movies are these days. Yes, there were very funny moments for parents, but my kids didn't get those. My kids, I don't think, you know, they loved it because it was just like Legos on the screen fighting each other. But I don't (laughs) think, you know, I guess it depends how old your kids, how old your kids are, how deeply they internalize the message. But, the other funny thing I think about the receptions of this movie is that we're all so interested in Legos and we have such nostalgia for Legos that we're not separate. We're not thinking of this as a kid's movie. We're thinking oh, no. of this as a movie for us. Yes, uh, that, that we happen to bring our kids right, to. Right, right. But, right. you know, I think generally, you know, as a kid's movie, it's not the most fabulous movie ever made. All right. So let's go on to recommendations. Um for this week, I am recommending uh, not a book or a, a show or, or music or anything like that. I'm recommending a, a spice. I'm recommending smoked Spanish Weird. paprika. Uh, it's, um, it's widely available on the internet and in stores. This is not Hungarian paprika. Um, it's not that other kind of paprika that's just paprika. This is smoked paprika. Um, and I'm recommending it because it is the perfect go-to spice for cooking for kids. Because if you just put a little of it in anything, it makes it taste kind of like bacon. Ah. Uh, it's perfect. So I'm especially fond of adding it to cornflakes before you smash up the cornflakes and then you make cornflake chicken nuggets. Oh, my God. I thought you meant like for breakfast. No, no. Okay. that. Well, I mean, that would also probably be delicious. But no, I don't do that. But no. So you add them to the cornflakes and you smash up the cornflakes and then you dip chick- chunks of chicken in those in that mix and then you bake them and then you make cornflake chicken nuggets. But if you add a little bit of smoked paprika to it, they taste like a little bit more bacony and delicious. Uh, but it also works with like vegetables. It's a great way to get kids to at least take one bite of vegetables before they spit them out in your face. It's good in soups. Um, this idea, by the way, came from the Gastro Kid Cookbook, which is a cookbook by Hugh Garvey and Matthew, Matthew Yeomans, um, which I sort of agree with in theory, this cookbook, uh, in that it has a number of recipes that I like. It also has a bunch of recipes that they claim their kids eat, but which they obviously no kid on earth has ever eaten, like stewed spinach with Spanish paprika that never – no one ever ate that. But I do love Spanish paprika as a, a go-to ingredient for making something that kids are more likely to try. Um, I would say great recommendation, Dan, but all I heard was wah, 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 because I don't cook. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll pass that along to my husband. Uh, My recommendation this week is not something for kids, but for something for you guys, the parents out there. Uh, I saw a movie this weekend that I loved called Afternoon Delight, and it's um, deeply depressing but also really funny (laughs) portrait of a middle-aged marriage. Um, The couple played by Catherine Hahn, who is just a wonderfully funny woman, and Josh Radner, who I think is from How I Met Your Mother. I'm not really sure. Um, They are married. They have one kid, and I'll give you the really brief synopsis, and it's not going to sound good, but she meets a stripper. The wife meets a stripper. She's going through a midlife. She meets a stripper. She ends up wanting to fix the stripper. She takes her into the home, into their home, and the stripper in many ways wreaks havoc on their lives and their marriage, and in some ways they wreak havoc on her life. 
Um, but it is, it's directed, written and directed by Jill Soloway. I think it might have won some award at Sundance. Anyway, I just, I loved it more than I've loved a movie in a long time. Uh, and it's, it, if you can be honest about your marriage and sit on the couch with your husband and not sort of, or, or wife, or if you're not married um, and want to sort of know what, <laughs> what the, the highs and lows of 40-something marriages, I, I highly recommend it. So have you found your stripper who you're going to bring back to your home? <laughs> I have. To, to fix I have everything? identified her, but she doesn't know yet. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to updates. <laughs> that will be next week's matter. recommendation. Uh, I have heard a lot of great things about Afternoon Delight. In fact, Jill Soloway also has a, um, a pilot on Amazon right now for a half-hour comedy that people are really raving about, right? That's her. Yeah, she's awesome. All right. So please, uh, listeners, email us at slate.com. Uh, with your thoughts about today's show or parenting tips uh, and suggestions for future topics. We are always listening. We always want to know. Um, and if you have a question for us for uh, a future podcast, um, please call us and leave us a message. That number one more time is 424-255-RUDE. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment on iTunes while you're there. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast. Thanks also to Andy Bowers, who's the executive producer for All Slate Podcasts. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.